As Latter-day Saint leaders, we face very difficult conversations that put us at risk of saying the wrong thing that can do more harm than good. Many of these conversations relate to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Have you had a fellow board member come out to you about their LGBT identity? Have you had LGBT neighbors and you just don't know what to say to them, so you ignore them instead? Have you wrestled with balancing love for your fellow men while still respecting the doctrines of the restored gospel? In order to help, Leading Saints has put together the LGBT Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of the most popular sessions are available now to watch. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now, or visit leadingsaints.org LGBT. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through various ways, including this very podcast that you're listening to. I hope you subscribe. Maybe leave us a review while you're at it. And I think you'll enjoy the content you find on this podcast. And then jump on over to leadingsaints.org and you'll find thousands of articles dedicated to leadership context as it relates to uh, being a Latter-day Saint. We have virtual summits that we've done. Check us out on social media and also a weekly newsletter that goes out that has unique content you won't find anywhere else. So uh, jump into the Leading Saints world. We're glad to have you. All right, today I'm in my home studio, which is really just a bedroom with a few mics in it, with Andrea Lystrup. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Kurt? Very good. Now you're in town. You're visiting Utah. I mean, who visits Utah anymore? But you do. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I'm one of the minority that finds family nice. and people here in Utah. Yeah, a few, few Latter-day Saint folks here that uh, are possibly related to you. So you are from where? I'm originally from Las Vegas, and I'm now living in Tucson, Arizona. Nice. So you came up here for a little cool uh, weather in, yes. in the, even though it might get me triple digits, but, and what do you do down there? I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and I run a private practice. Cool. That's awesome. And you reached out to me, it was a few months ago. You had this trip plan. You're like, I'm coming to town. I have an idea of maybe what we could talk about. And I love the idea, right? Uh, yeah. What, so what, where did this idea come from? And, and, the, and maybe that give you an opportunity to explain the topic. Yeah. So I, in my practice, I work with a lot of people who describe themselves as feeling spiritually worn out. And I think COVID has only exacerbated that further mm. where they, sometimes they go to church and they don't feel like they're receiving the same uplifting of the spirit that other people are. And so sometimes that's been through mental health challenges have made it hard for them to feel the spirit. Other times it's because they have a faith crisis that's going on and it makes them not connect with the material in the same way that they used to. And when you feel spiritually worn out, it affects all areas of your life. Yeah. And, and you know, we hope that the, the church experience is a place where people leave feeling like, oh, like, I'm so glad I did that, you know, and but it's not always that way, right? Yeah, I have a number of clients that will say that they go to church and they end up feeling like there's something wrong with them because they're not getting the mm. same answers to prayers or experiences that seems like everyone else around them is getting. And so they find themselves wondering, is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with everybody else? Yeah. And yeah. you don't want to leave church feeling like there's something no. wrong with anybody. No, you, know, you want to feel not. community there. Yeah. And, and I'm just thinking of specifically the leaders sometimes, you know, like I've talked with bishops who are just quietly suffering. They just, they really hate their calling and they look forward to it to end and mm -hmm. they can't wait to just move on and, and, you know, a lot of my experience in different callings was like, no, this is can be a remarkable thing to be a part of. And it broke my heart when it when mm -hmm. it went away, you know, and so we want people to have that experience. So 
We're going to explore this as far as, I mean, the, the re-engaging the spiritually worn out, right? Yeah. And I was reading over your your outline with my wife last night. She's like, well, it's not necessarily spiritually worn out as much as church worn out sometimes. Do you think there's a difference there? Or? Yeah. I mean, I think it can be. I think sometimes we get over... A lot of people talk about how it's not the... It's not the doctrine, it's the culture. And so I think there are aspects of the culture that wear people out. But I also think with depression, for example, I think it can really interrupt your ability to feel anything other than just neutral. And so that includes spiritual experiences as well. And if you are trying to participate in a community and you're trying to do your calling and you want to participate to the fullest extent that you can, but you're not feeling spiritually uplifted, I think you do feel spiritually worn out. You forget what it feels like to feel that upliftment and it's hard to keep going. Right. And I've seen examples where people begin to find that outside the traditions of our church, you know, where it's like, man, I went to this retreat and I finally felt it there. And so what's wrong with, you know, can Mm -hmm. really kind of trigger maybe that faith uh, crisis or the kind Mm -hmm. of dissonance of like, well, why did I feel it there, but not here? And maybe Mm -hmm. there's something wrong with that or, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's interesting. Anything else as far as like what makes your perspective unique about, obviously you have clients that you meet with uh, that bring up some of these current concerns, but anything else? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've always been kind of interested in this topic because I'm the youngest child of, I have four older brothers and I'm quite a bit younger than all of them. And so, and I've watched three of the four of my brothers leave the church. And so I've kind of witnessed from the background how my parents have dealt with some of these things and um, kind of seen the effect that my brothers have had. And I think right now with people coming back from church from COVID, I've had a lot of friends reach out and say, you know, I've been struggling with this and that, or just kind of throughout my life, I've kind of been the collecting ground of people that complain about the church. (laughs) So I've heard a lot of stories. I've heard it professionally. I've heard it with friends. I've heard it with siblings. And so I, I have a lot of collective gripes to share yeah. i guess that yeah that's interesting and this covid dynamic is is interesting because you know just uh this week my wife was talking to a neighbor and it was and she said something like yeah we haven't come to back to church yet but we're, we're coming and you know we're, we'll do it but it's more of this feeling of like okay here we go again right you know, well like, and sometimes yeah. the things that have surprised me is it's been well-respected members of the community that have served as bishops or Mm. state presidents or in various capacities. And they're even saying, oh, it's really comforting to just sit at home and watch it online. And it's hard to want to put the effort to come back in. And like, these are good standing members that have really been pillars of their community. Yeah. And and sometimes people interpret that as like, oh, you know, it's a form of laziness or apathy. People just want to watch church in their pajamas. I sort of wince when I hear that. It's like, well, no, it's like there's this spiritual exercise and engagement that sometimes is overburdening that Mm -hmm. uh, they're where they could maybe have that under control more in Mm -hmm. the context of their home, right? Right. Well, and I've talked to some young families in particular that they just say, I feel like when I'm in church on Sundays, I'm, it's a, it's a WFC match. Like I'm, or is that what WWFC? (laughs) Something they changed their name. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a fight club where you're wrestling, at least for me with my three boys, like you're always kicking them under the bench, telling them to sit down and be quiet. And so it's, sometimes it's nice to really focus on the messages and not how people are perceiving your children or some people have hearing issues or there's a number of reasons why people would prefer the online experience to in person. Yeah. I admit sometimes during, you know, the uh, watching church online, it was like, yeah, the kids were, I I invited the kids and 
wanting them to sit down and watch church, but sometimes they snuck away to their room and my wife and I just enjoyed it. And that was kind of nice, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And so that's not an option. It, uh-huh. You can take the whole crew to, to church. Right. right. Yeah. Well, one of the things, whenever I'm feeling spiritually disengaged, I feel really grateful that my grandfather, before he passed away, compiled hundreds of pages of his life history and different talks that he had given in church. And he was a state president and done a lot of, a lot of, a lot of talks in his life. And mm-hmm. so one that he talked about was like, why do we need religion? Like, why do we need other people? And that talk in particular was really helpful as I was like making the decision to come back to in-person practice was like, we need people like we need, that's how you get better is by learning from the examples yeah. of other people. And, and I think especially I really liked, there's a talk in general conference called poor little ones, where they talked about how even like we especially need the people who feel the most disengaged or the most removed or like we need their spirits even more mm-hmm. than yeah. perhaps the ones that we always hear. Yeah, that's fantastic. So let's jump into this as far as what makes people spiritually worn out. What what can we learn there? So I think the one that I was aware of the first is mental illness. So having depression or anxiety can really interfere with your ability to sit in church. And if you have social anxiety, it can be really hard to reach out to to speak. And I think we learned that you gain a lot of testimony through the bearing of your testimony. And I've heard people just say that they just physically can't. And so that's an, an area where some people feel like they're uplifted is by sharing their experience. If your social anxiety gets in the way, you're not going to do that. And you're also not as comfortable engaging in the fellowship. So you, instead of participating in the church meetings, you sit in the foyer and you like read a book and try to avoid contact with people. Mm. And so I think social anxiety has a huge component in your ability to feel relaxed and to kind of open to the spirit. And then I think with depression, a lot of times people incorrectly perceive it as just being really sad and miserable. But for a lot of people, it's just flat affect. They don't feel sad. They don't feel happy. They don't feel angry. It's just nothing. Yeah. Like indifferent. And, mm-hmm. or, yeah. Right. Yeah, and so if that's where you are, then going to church where people are like sharing their souls or sharing these beautiful experiences not only you're not feeling it, but then the other problem is that people will say things that kind of trigger you. So for example, I've had clients that have talked about praying for something for years and specifically for a relief from their depression that it's like they've tried therapy and medicine and nothing is working. And then they hear other people talk about how they had this beautiful spiritual experience and it cured them. And they think, well, how come they got it and not me? Or like, why is there something wrong with me? And then some people can even take that to the further extreme and they feel like God is punishing them, that there's something they've done wrong. And so this is them being punished for that. And that can feel even harder to then engage in church if you feel like this is some curse that God doesn't love you. That's, And I think sometimes we don't realize how deep that level of despair can go and how triggering mm-hmm. those kind of church experiences can be for them. Yeah. And so adding this uh, sort of this mental health dynamic to it, depression and things like that, that it's again, it's not that the person's lazy or the person doesn't have a testimony, but there's some complexities happening in their mind mm-hmm. that uh, that really feed into this. Like, not only do I have to go to church and listen to these stories, but now they want me to serve in three different ways mm-hmm. or, you know, they want us to participate. I can't always get called on. It's like this or, or I, the, the guilt trips or what I perceive as guilt trips can just sort of add on. And then that mental health gets inflamed, right? Right. Well, and also I think sometimes we don't understand what it's like to be someone who's, for example, has experienced like trauma or abuse. Because I really think a lot of times your ability 
to feel a relationship with your heavenly father is going to depend on your ability to have felt loved by anybody. Mm -hmm. And so if you come from a family where you weren't feeling loved or you experienced abuse or neglect, and then perhaps you never were married or you experienced that same neglect in your marriage or you're distant from your children. Like if you've never really had those loving bonding experiences, it can feel foreign to think that you have a savior that loves you or a heavenly father that loves you. And that's one of the things when the going gets tough for a lot of people that they can say like, okay, I'm struggling with this aspect of the church or I'm struggling with my relationship with people in the ward or that sort of thing. But at least I have heavenly father. At least I have Christ. But I think these that at least kind of statement for people that feel like they don't even have that is kind of like, well, then what is there for me here? Mm-hmm. And how do I how do I get that? And like you said, they're not lazy. I mean, I've had clients that say that they have prayed for hours and they still don't get that reassurance and that can feel really isolating for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oftentimes there's uh, I guess one one thing on like this, the idea of triggering, like I want to make sure that as people listen to it, it's not that it's not like on the bishop or everybody else that's saying things that you can't say certain things because it may trigger people. But I think it's just important to be aware of how people interpret things that are said with the best intentions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, we want people to stand up and share faith-promoting experiences. Absolutely. We shouldn't diminish that or say, yeah, let's not do that anymore. But just being aware of like, oh, like for some people, because of their background, their DNA, Tony Overbay says all this, the DNA, their their brain, their, you know, all these things that, that happen in their life, they interpret that a certain way. Mm-hmm. And maybe the person next to them on the pew doesn't interpret mm-hmm. that way. They may feel like, well, I found that incredibly inspiring as the mm-hmm. next person's like, like more of this. Uh Well, and I think that's where the power of empathy and vulnerability really come in is I don't think there's anything wrong with sharing your faith filled experiences. I think that's why we go to church is to learn from other people and to be inspired and think, oh, yeah, I haven't been thinking about I haven't been looking upward. I've been more focused on myself. And that's why I'm miserable. So thanks for the reminder to incorporate more faith. So I don't think we're I'm trying to say at all that we need to eliminate that. But I think some of the most powerful church experiences that I've ever had is when someone shares a vulnerability or empathy as well. And so that's something when I'm sharing faith experiences in church is I try to have this in mind of say, thinking, okay, so if this particular client was in the room, how would they receive what, I, hmm. what I'm saying? And is there something that I can say that at least validates their experience or lets them know that they're not alone or that other people are thinking of them? Because I think part of it is you just you need to feel like you belong. And one easy way to do that is just to show people that you're thinking of people like them. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is, does an example come to mind is maybe how you do that or an approach like the next time somebody does want to make a comment, I don't want people to feel like, oh, I shouldn't make that because I don't know how others will respond. Any any mm-hmm. advice you'd give in making a comment or yeah, sharing well, a I testimony? Mean, I, th- I think about, I went to a testimony meeting about a month ago where the counselor who was in the bishopric opened up the meeting and he shared his testimony. And he just said, honestly, I have really wrestled with my testimony in a way that I never have before. I've really come to experience a lot of doubts in a way that really surprised me. And it kind of scared me. But and I'm still working through it. And one of the things that I find faith promoting is to bear my testimony. And so he bore his testimony of the essentials like God and Christ and um, the Book of Mormon and that sort of thing. And he said, I encourage you, the particularly the, those of you who are struggling to bear your testimony on whatever nugget is left. Yeah. And it was such a beautiful faith promoting experience to say, we welcome you because you are struggling. Like we are a hospital for people that are struggling. And yeah. I think it was a wonderful example of opening the door and kind of giving people the invitation. Cause I think a lot of times we hold back and think, Oh, well, people don't want to hear my nugget of a testimony. It's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I have to, 
see this uh, sort of this process or this cultural tradition of we often turn the gospel into, I call it gospel algebra. Like what I did is I was righteous or I did these righteous things, plus I was consistent about it and therefore my problems went away. Mm -hmm. So anytime we sort of put the gospel into this math equation of like good works plus consistency equals happy, no problem life, right? Mm -hmm. For other people, it's like, okay, listen, I did that math equation and my life didn't turn out that way. Mm -hmm. Now what, right? Exactly. Rather than saying, you know, I just suffer, there's suffering in life, there's pain. And that's why we have the Savior, isn't it beautiful, right? Like sort of that redemptive flavor of of Mm -hmm. some of these comments. But And I also think one of the problems is that we tend to share our struggle after the fact. So we say, I've been struggling with my testimony or I've been struggling with depression, but now I've overcame it and this is how I did it. And I don't think we open up the door enough to say, well, how are you struggling right now? How can we be, how can we validate you and support you right now? Like you don't have to be a finished product to feel worthy of standing up in front of everybody and sharing your experience. Yeah. I think the present right now is what we have. This is what we have control over. And this is where we can provide the empathy and the understanding. So yeah. you don't need to be a finished product. Yeah, yeah. That's really good. Really good. Anything else as far as mental health or depression that feeds into this, you know, disengagement of, of spiritually? Um, I think just a lot of it has been, I've seen it be exacerbated with COVID in that I think it's been a reminder how much we need each other mm-hmm. and depression and anxiety is fueled by loneliness. And so I think as much as we can do as a church culture to be looking out for the lonely and the the one really, and when you think about the parable of the lost sheep, like I think if all 99 of us are constantly looking out for the lonely, I think it would make our congregations a much more inspiring place. Yeah. Yeah, because it is easy to just sort of show up and be like, I'm here. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> in some weeks, that's sort of all you can do, right? But uh, to just be engaged and looking for the... And I also think once you find the one, I think sometimes we tend to shower them with, here, read the Book of Mormon, read this general conference talk, like expect all of your problems to go away. And I think more than anything, when you look at the parable of the 99 and the one, what Christ was doing at the time when the parable came about is he was eating with sinners. Mm-hmm. And that's what prompted the 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 parable. And so I think more than saying, here's something that'll fix your problem is just saying, here, let's go get lunch together. Yeah. Let's eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the porch. Yeah. Something simple, I right. think is Yeah, I did a, an interview with Janice Spangler about this concept of service versus solidarity. And uh, and oftentimes we default to service like, well, oh, you're going through a tough time. I'm going to bring you dinner this week or I'm going to do this for you. But instead of being like, I'm just going to sit and be present with you mm-hmm. and try and empathize with what you're experiencing and realize that the suffering has meaning and purpose, mm-hmm. but we don't know what it is yet. And, it, and I recognize that it hurts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anything else with uh, depression, mental health or? No, I mean, it's a huge topic, but I yeah, think yeah. in okay. general, like what we can do is just love people. Don't yeah. treat them like a problem to be solved, but a person to be loved. Mm-hmm. Love that. What do the spiritually worn out actually say about going to church? So what, I mean, how do people articulate this? In, in when they're in that state of just being spiritually worn out and church is still coming on Sunday? I mean, if, if anything, it feels like a sense of otherness. Like all of a sudden you don't belong. You you are perceiving this community as everybody else has it together. They understand what's going on, but and it's working for them. So there's something wrong with me. Or you think about like that spiritual algebra equation that you're saying, like like what have I done wrong? So if, if everybody else's spiritual algebra works for them, then God must hate me. I must be cursed. Like there must be something that I'm feeling punished for. 
or I think sometimes there's also like the sense of paralysis where I think a lot of times depression or anxiety or just like faith crises in general can spur the sense of fear or this impending doom. Like if I, if all of these, if spiritual algebra is working out for everybody else, but me, and you have this equation of like, there's either something wrong with me or there's something wrong with everybody else. Sometimes you'll do that equation and you think, well, I really don't think there's something wrong with me. So maybe this isn't true. Like maybe the church isn't yeah. true. It's and the so, model. It's broken. Mm-hmm, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think that can kind of start to make the ground fall out from under you and start questioning everything about the church. And we don't want to do, we don't want our communities to be the very thing that is keeping, is making people feel like they don't belong. I think it's that belongingness that is so essential. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is how, how that happens almost on a subconscious level, like where then if people can see people leave the church and it's maybe about historic issues or doctrinal issues, which are, you know, I, I validate and can get messy there, but we never perceive that. Yeah. But months earlier, they sort of subconsciously went through this process of like, okay, everybody else has this figured out or this model is broken because they articulate that it's working a certain way, but that doesn't work for me. And mm-hmm. wait a minute, wait a minute, what did Joseph Smith do? Like, okay, now, like then it mm-hmm. starts to sort of, you can latch onto that. Right. And then concerns. all of a sudden it feels like everybody else is drinking some Kool-Aid that you don't have access yeah. to and <laughs> yeah. it can make everything. And then when your shelf breaks or your ground falls apart, then everything kind of goes into free fall and then you are suspicious of everything. And so then you're sitting in church and you're thinking that there's something wrong about this model and then someone's saying something and you just are you're skeptical of everything and then like you will hear comments about like don't rehearse your doubts with other doubters or you'll hear things like that and you well where do i go because these people don't see things the same that i do so what else is there for me yeah and i think we really need to do a better job of of opening up people wherever they are yeah and having space for them i I love how you kind of loop in the, you know, President Nelson's recent talk because, you know, the talk was great. Like on paper, you read through it point by point, love it, right? Yeah. Then you mix it into just the intricacies of human nature, mental health, and and then these one-line phrases sometimes can be a lot less helpful than Mm -hmm. maybe we perceive them as... Right, exactly. When you look at it as a whole, it is a very faith-promoting talk. And of course, the prophet is going to be wanting people to engage in a positive way in the church and look for the bright side and like hold to the foundations of the church. Like right. you wouldn't expect anything other, right. other anything else other than that. And, but I think the, the key is, is you apply the, the talk to yourself, then you also make room for others for wherever they are. Yeah. Right. And, and when somebody comes forward, it's like, what, what president Nelson said here was really hurtful to me. And you want to say, well, well, come on, you're just seeing it wrong. Like the problem's with you and that's not helping because mm-hmm. that's perpetuating what they're already thinking is, yeah, I think the problem is with me or with this model. And so mm-hmm. something's wrong here, right? Well, and I, I really like to look at our relationship to the church as a marriage and mm-hmm. so that we have wonderful things in our marriage. Like there's a reason why we stay married and there's a lot of things that make it wonderful and good and a wonderful thing to participate in. Yeah. But then I don't know if your marriage is perfect, but I know mine has its <laughs> moments where you have to really work through some things and you have to really kind of have some deep discussions that are painful and you work hard at right. marriage. And so I think that's the same thing with church. I think if you expect it to be wonderful and uplifting and beautiful all the time and not ever have to work through some nitty gritties, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. And we can often perceive the church as sort of, and this is a future interview coming up, but I had this discussion with a seminary teacher as far as like church pain. And 
we often can put the church experience into a box of like, no, it is the answer. As if, you know, we sort of mix up Christ with the church at times. Like, no, no, you engage in this experience here and it works. Mm -hmm. And if it, and if you say it doesn't work, there's something wrong with your testimony, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to step back and just realize this is messy here. Mm -hmm. And there's just like a marriage, like I would say the institution of marriage absolutely works, Mm -hmm. but it is messy Mm -hmm. day to day, week to week, month to month, or there's seasons where it's like, man, we are off and Mm -hmm. we really need to sit down and figure some things out Mm -hmm. or this isn't going to lead to anywhere good. Right. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes applying almost like a trauma-informed approach to understanding how people respond to hurtful things. And I think there's there's definitely degrees of trauma. There's the straight-A student who gets their first B, like that's a trauma for them. And mm-hmm. there's major life, earth-shattering, life-changing traumas. And and I think in marriage, it's the same thing. There's like small hurts and big hurts. And I think the same thing with church. And, and if you apply more of a trauma-informed lens, it helps you make a lot of sense of what people do. And so I think of, if you look at trauma, the, resp- the, the three responses is fight, flight, and freeze. And so I think if you look at how members, in- the, these worn out members engage, there's three different options. There's the, the freeze mentality, which is the people who are attending church for years and years and years. They're not really participating. They feel like spiritually worn out and disengaged. And I think those are the types that you would kind of classify as the lazy learners because you're like, oh, you're not reading your scriptures enough. Mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. participating enough. But really, they're frozen because they're afraid of something. They're afraid that if they discover that this model isn't working for them, then the whole like the whole foundation of where they built their life will fall apart. So in that case, if you're face to face to face with a lion, it does make sense to just kind of hold still and yeah. say, if I don't do anything, then I can at least not make it worse. Yeah. And so I think that's the way a lot of people are participating in our congregations is they're a little bit unsettled about things, but they have this intense fear of making things worse. And so they just don't really want to do anything. Yeah. And then you have the flighters. They're the people that flee. And I think those are the ones that just leave. Like all of a sudden you just never see them again or, or you re- you try to reach out. They're on your rolls and you kind of do, but they just avoid you or change the subject or that sort of thing. So I think you have the fleers. And then I think you also have, there's two different types of fighters. I think there's the type that go on their social media. They publicly leave the church and go on their social media and say all the different things that they found wrong. Or they could also be the type that are still trying to meaningfully engage in the church, but they say kind of edgy or hard to hear comments in Sunday school that make people nervous and they don't quite know what to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. It was, those were three. What was the first one again? The There's freeze, fight, freeze. and flight. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. That's a great way to sort of contextualize it. And I, I appreciate you to bring up trauma and all this because going back to the marriage example, like you, you take marriage in general, and then you mix in some level of trauma. So for example, maybe the wife was sexually abused as a child, that will dramatically change the dynamics of that marriage, even though the husband is not a- Was not the perpetrator, right. Exactly. And so the same thing happened with church where me, I grew up in a, I feel like a very positive, healthy relationship between me and the church and the experiences there, they were life-changing, you Mm -hmm. know, going on a mission wasn't even a a question. Mm -hmm. And then you take someone who maybe- came from an abusive home and their dad was a monster at home. And then you see him at church and he sort of put on this act and that mm-hmm. there's some trauma there as far as like, why are you different here right. when you're a monster Huge at home? Huge cognitive right? dissonance. And then that changes the dynamic of that person with the relationship with their church experience. Right. right. Well, it can also, I've seen number of so many people, both professionally and personally that have known that their family members are abusive and then also seen them hold high up church callings, which mm-hmm. can 
then like really do a number on your testimony of the priesthood and the sense of divine callings. Like, how do you make sense of that? Yeah. If you know that someone is doing some horrific things at home. Right. Right. And again, it just changes the dynamic. It's, it's not like, it's not the church's fault. It's not that person's fault. It's just mortality. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. it's, it's right. mortality's fault that the imperfect, mm-hmm. you know, the imperfect world and life we live in creates these dynamics that mm-hmm. make, uh, you know, going to church and right. the, that equation and that model to work. Well, and I think we, we expect a lot of the church. I think we have kind of a culture of perfection mm-hmm. and we think that we have this divine access so that our church should, we shouldn't have these problems. But then that just reminds me of Elder Holland's talk several years ago. I forget what it was called, but it was about doubt. And he just said, like, imperfect people is all Heavenly Father has ever had to work with. And I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating to him just as it is us. (laughs) But if he's patient with us, then we need to be patient with us. Yeah. And I just love the realizing the nuance that is there. And sitting in that and appreciating it for what it is rather than saying, no, 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 like, no, this should be, this model should work. And sort of, you almost fight for it. Like, mm-hmm. I must convince myself that this works or else my testimony is in question mm-hmm. or, or I'll start to doubt, right? But just say, no, this is messy. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like Christ is this beautiful experience of redemption once we come unto him. And this is a model mm-hmm. that can bring us unto him. Absolutely. And I also think sometimes that it would be helpful for bishops to understand or anybody that really is trying to minister to someone who's struggling to understand the differences and how people grow up relating to the church. So I feel like in my family, I grew up very much with a don't throw the baby out with the bathwater mentality. Mm -hmm. So if I came to my mom with questions or said like, Hey, like this really bothered me or this bothers me. My mom would say, Oh, actually that bothers me too. And that's just something that I don't worry about because I have a testimony and all these other things that I find so beautiful that I would not cast the whole thing out. But I think there's other people that kind of come from more like scrupulous backgrounds where everything has to be perfect, like all yeah, of their decisions. Very rigid, right? Rigid, mm-hmm. yeah. And like all of their decisions have to culminate into like perfection. So even if they make a mistake, it was a mistake towards learning about perfection. I think that can, though, when you come from that more rigid mentality, it's a lot harder to be flexible and it's a lot harder to look at human imprints, the flaws of that we get by touching the gospel I think it can be harder to forgive yeah. those imperfections. Yeah. So when you, I'm just curious, like when you see, maybe have a client come in and and you're perceiving there's some rigidity, <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but you know, they're very rigid or scrupulous in their approach to their faith. And because sometimes I interact with people, I'm just like, oh, like you're sort of ripe for a faith crisis. Like we need to like open up the, to the ambiguity of the gospel and, and the, the nuances here. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, it's going to hit you hard at some point. So how do we help people you know, in, inoculate themselves maybe a little bit to that that rigidness sometimes invites that black and white mentality. Mm-hmm. So, are you thinking about how to open them up before they ever hit the faith crisis, or what to do when they are in the faith crisis? Like before. So, if you had a client come in and it's just sort of like, wow, I can see you're trying to really tighten down on the church algebra here and, mm-hmm. and follow step A, B, because that leads to happiness and no problems, right? Like. Is there, do you just sort of have to wait around or? I mean, it's hard because it's, I feel like it's threatening to people. I think those types of people are very much to say there is no black and white. It's like, or there is no gray. Everything is black and white. Mm -hmm. And so then to try and say, well, like, but don't you see gray area here? Or how is, haven't you seen gray area in other areas of your life? It can be kind of like, whoa, are you trying to shatter my worldview? Like this isn't what I believe. And so I think. Part of it is meeting them where they are and validating their experience and seeing the benefits of 
of their perspective, I think helps loosen people. Mm. So I'm a big believer in the finger Chinese finger trap analogy. So whenever you're trying to move someone closer to a certain perspective, you first need to push forward, take a step closer to them. And then that helps them relax their stance and then follow you a little bit more. Mm. So instead of coming to them and being like, Hey, like, here's all these gray areas. Welcome to the (laughs) rainbow of like different perspectives. Uh That's not going to go very far. I think they're going to say like, Oh, like you are crazy. You might as well just like, you don't understand me at all. Whereas if you say like, Oh my goodness, there's so much strength in your perspective. I, I look at you as like the backbone of the body of Christ. Like you have so much strength and you can handle a lot of burden. And I think a lot of times those rigid black and white thinkers are always the ones to show up to clean the chapels on on Saturdays. Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. always volunteering to bring casseroles. Like they really are and oftentimes the backbone of our church. And so I think validating that perspective can be really helpful and less threatening than saying, let's try to make you have yeah. a different worldview. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. And uh yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of therapists, I don't, this code of conduct or if this is official, but like do no harm, right? When mm-hmm. you're meeting with somebody. And so, yeah, you could go in there and sort of shatter their world a little bit and be like, okay, I'm glad I, I'm glad I shattered your world before the world did that for you. Mm-hmm. Now let's put the pieces together. But they're like, wait a minute. No, you can't do this. So you sort of just validate where they're at and, and say, Hey, you know, I'm here to talk about anything, you know? And, well, and, and I also think in general in therapy, People don't often come to you before their worldview is shattered. Yeah. I'm more of the yeah, yeah. the person that's picking <laughs> that's up the pieces. So I feel like the pre-work is not often done by me. I think yeah. that's more the realm of friends and that sort of thing mm-hmm. is just being supportive yeah. and making space for them and whatever. Yeah, that's great. Anything else as far as the what we can do better to help these saints? Yeah, so I, mean, I think if you're talking about wanting to do better, there's... That I think the finger trap analogy is the first place to go. Mm-hmm. You want to meet people where they are. And I think one of the ways that we try to help people is I think we try to imprint our brain onto theirs and say, if you can just look <laughs> at things my way, then you won't have a problem with this. And instead of doing that, just say, like, tell me your story. Like, what is it that you are experiencing? And just validate me like, wow, that sounds really hard. Like, I can I can see why that would be a challenge for you to come to church and I think sometimes we're afraid to even say those words that it would be challenging to come to church because I think we're afraid of, of that giving them the permission to say, oh, you think it's challenging too? All right, well then, yeah. see, I'm not coming yeah, this back. Is, yeah, this is broken, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. But I, I, so I think we're afraid of admitting that things can be hard for some people, but it actually usually has the opposite effect. And so there's a whole realm of therapy that talks about how the way that we try to fix people ends up making the problem worse it's called strategic therapy. And the idea is that if you kind of prescribe the opposite or you kind of do the opposite of what you would normally do, then that can kind of give them the release to, to approach you then and to come a little bit closer. And so I think like, yeah, like this is really hard. Like instead of trying to nag you to come sit in sacrament meeting, like, would you like us to have someone come sit with you in the foyer or just try to be creative with the things that we suggest? I think oftentimes we double down on saying like, well, have you read your scriptures? Have you listened to general conference? Are you coming to church? Are you praying? Are you praying long enough? Are you praying on your knees? Are you listening to music before you pray? I think we're very prescriptive of what mm-hmm. we want to fix the problem. And if sometimes just doing the radical opposite of just doing nothing and just saying, well, I'm here, like complain. I'm a voice that can receive this and I won't judge you for it. I won't try to correct your opinions. I won't do anything other than be here for you. Yeah. And I think that's a really important first step. Yeah. And this is a, the tricky part because as a church leader, we never want to be perceived that we're 
pushing somebody away from from the church or the church traditions or experiences or ordinances, right? We mm-hmm. should always be bringing them towards them. But I often use the the bicycle analogy that, you know, we talk about trauma, we talk about different life experiences that by the time they sit on the gospel bike, they're dressed up in scuba diving gear mm-hmm. because of all of these life experiences. And then we keep telling them, well, just pedal faster, pedal mm-hmm. faster. Like, well, no, the problem is, is that they have flippers on their feet and they can't pedal faster. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes there's a there's a process that obviously we have to make sure we have resources in place to help them do this, but where they have to step off the bike for a minute and mm-hmm. be like, okay, let's get the flippers off of you. Mm-hmm. Let's get you into some biking shorts and a helmet. And mm-hmm. and then when you get back on the bike, you can zoom. Right. right? And, but that's scary for Lear. Like, but, but no, they can't get off the bike. But I remember mm-hmm. as a bishop seeing many people some individuals have stepped away from the church and I'm thinking, I don't know how else you're going to reconcile your life experiences right now unless you just sort of take a breather from mm-hmm. this day-to-day, week-to-week grind of the gospel. Absolutely. And I have talked to a number of people where I have felt the level of anxiety that they feel in church or the level of anger that they feel in church or the level of whatever negative feeling that is they're experiencing and it affects all of them. I mean, it starts Saturday night where they start being, oh, tomorrow's Sunday and like the anger, or the anxiety or whatever mm-hmm. it is starts brewing inside of them. And we expect them to heal in that environment. And I think like the strategic therapy thing to do, and I've done this before in session where I'll say like, well, have you thought about like taking a break and that sort of thing? And what sometimes has been really interesting is that, like, it's a scary move to say like, do you, like, do you want to take a rest period? But oftentimes what people will say is like, well, no, because that's where my friends are. That's where my family is, or I enjoy the music or I do that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And so when you talk about discovering what reinforces people's spirituality, it's oftentimes saying, well, it can come across as manipulative. If you say, well, like, what would you miss if you miss church? Because then you, <laughs> you feel like you're kind of getting a gotcha statement. Yeah. But if you do the opposite where you're like, well, like, why don't you just, I mean, you're clearly disturbed by this. Why don't you take a break for a few weeks and see how you feel? then the reasons that they tell you, like they're reinforcing it for themselves. So they don't feel like they're being like pressured or manipulated by you. It's like, no, I just genuinely have a lot of things about the church that I don't want to lose. And mm-hmm. so they're reinforcing it for themselves, which is extremely valuable. Like that's what you want people to do. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than this, uh, you know, every time I go to meet the bishop, he's trying to sort of manipulate me into coming to church mm-hmm. or, uh, or focusing on, you know, what will get me in the building or whatever. When mm-hmm. in reality, I'm like suffering inside. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Anything else in this section with we can do better to help these saints? You mentioned Gordon B. Hinckley's three three ingredients. Any anything we haven't hit on in different ways? Yeah, so that? I think we haven't really talked about an assignment. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in viewing these people as projects. And so a lot of people will say, like, well, as soon as I told the bishop that I was struggling, then all of a sudden my ministers like showed up three times a month <laughs> and I haven't seen them in five years, yeah. or I like am seeing all these people that like really have had no relationship with me. And people do not want to feel like a project that can feel like any ministering efforts you do are box checkers and not because they actually care about you. And you don't want to do that. And so I think sometimes when you're giving them an assignment, helping them feel needed and finding a purpose that they can serve in that makes them feel good and comfortable, I think is a good place to start. And that might, I mean, I know for my brother, he, um, when he was struggling with it, he still loved the scouting organization. And so Hmm. he would participate that way. Or someone else is like, oh, I, I can handle the library. Like, that's a safe place. For, or nursery is a really popular. Yeah. Like, I love children. Like, that can be a good option. So I think finding ways that they can serve. And if they can't handle a calling, like, that's respectful. Like, 
finding, helping, having them help plan cool service projects or whatever meaningful way that they are willing to engage in, I think is a really important thing to do. And just and ha- not looking at them as a project. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful that instead of like, again, going bombarding them with service and casseroles or, you know, visits or whatever, but saying, you know, and I'd be open to your ideas or thoughts here, but is it just simply making that invitation of like, how would you like to engage in our religious community or the gospel and then see what ideas you know, mm-hmm. come to the surface. And, and when I think, it, I mean, it's two things, like I said before, you can't look at people like a problem to be solved. So the purpose of yeah. having them participate isn't because you want to like boost your numbers or like make them come back to church. It's because you genuinely love them and need them. And that's what I loved about that. Poor little ones talk so much is that it talks about how much like we especially need those that are struggling, that they have this experience that enriches our wards in ways that, like those of us who have never struggled can't, can't grasp. And so I think really communicating to them that like, we value you, like you are an essential part of the body of Christ. And if you like, can't be right in the center, like how can we, like, can you be the softer hands that kind of can reach out to other people? Can you help other people feel like they belong and feel welcome? And so I think just finding a place for everybody in the body of Christ and really communicating that you need them. This isn't that you you just want them to feel good about yourselves or to validate that the church is true. And if people yeah. come back, then it makes you feel like better about yourself as I genuinely love you and want your company. Yeah. I, really I remember important. oftentimes I would tell people, you know, if, if they were really struggling I'd be like, do you know, there's, I know there's at least five other people in Relief Society that feel the same way as you do. Mm-hmm. And I need you in that room to sit by them. I mm-hmm. need you to know that they're not alone. So mm-hmm. I would love for you to to join us. And I know there might be tough weeks over others, but uh, we need you here, right? Mm-hmm. And, and really expressing that need in a, in a sincere way. And, and sometimes this can go off the rails of sort of like, you know, we really need someone to, uh, to set up chairs or like, it's like, like, no, you don't like, you'll oh, find somebody else, right, you know, exactly. and, uh, but to really articulate why they're needed. And if that doesn't come to mind, if you can't think of it, maybe something to ponder over and think about mm-hmm. and then return to that discussion. Right? Yeah. When I also just kind of back to this view of being a project, I really I like to look at faith development in the analogy of my bougainvillea that I bought last year and almost killed. A bougainvillea? A bougainvillea. I don't what know. is this? So it's a beautiful flower. <laughs> okay. It has it's green and on then it, when it blooms, all of the leaves turn pink. And so it's just like this beautiful pink wow. majestic bush that is gorgeous. And so last year I bought a really expensive fully bloomed one because I wanted to skip the maturing process and have a nice backyard. <laughs> And then during the winter, it it can't handle a freeze and it froze in Tucson. And so all of the leaves fell off and my bougainvillea was the ugliest sticky looking branch (laughs) ever. And I looked at that and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's dead. Like, I don't think it's coming back. And I was about to just rip out the whole thing and plant a new plant. But I decided to give it like one last chance and look on the Internet to see what it is I'm supposed to do. And they said, just keep pruning until there's some sign of life. And if you can't find any sign of life, just cut it off to about an inch above the soil. And so I kept pruning and there was nothing, 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 nothing. So I went right down to the inch above the soil and went, well, okay, I hope this works. And then what they, what it says is don't overwater it because they don't have any leaves that can process this water. So if you pour in too much water, then it's going to experience root rot. Root rot. Wow. And so I think that's something what happens is so there's people that are feeling disengaged and they're barely hanging on. They're like debating whether they should just rip out the whole thing and find a new belief system or whether they should hang in there and hope that their bougainvillea grows back. <laughs> and if you treat them like a project and overwater them and say, here's all these resources, read this, read that, do this. 
that's overwatering. Whereas if you just say like, Hey, I'm here, like, I'm going to attend to you every now and then show you that I care, show you that I like want to be a part of your life. I like w- want to welcome you in my garden, but I'm not going to overwhelm you to the point where I push you away. Then you're not going to experience root rot. And then miraculously, maybe we can be a grew back amazing. And it's wow. beautiful now. Cool. So That's I think, awesome. and I think that pruning process is for a lot of people is saying, okay, so maybe you've, you're struggling with church history or that sort of thing, or maybe you're struggling with feeling the spirit or depression, or like you've had experiences of abuse in your family that's making it hard to like view the priesthood or in a positive way or like whatever it is that you're struggling with like prune it off like you don't need it from now and then pruning until you find something and so i think that like you can survive spiritually like on a grain of a mustard seed Uh really like you don't need this like beautiful flowering testimony to show other people like it it can grow back if you just treat it well yeah I love a good metaphor. I love that. I love that. And because we do, <laughs> I'm just thinking like, sometimes we're like, okay, it's dead, but let's see if we can revive it. Fertilizer, water, you know, mm-hmm. more sun. Like, what what else do we need to do? And the person is like, I am dying the more you try and help. So stop trying to help I just need time. Me. Yeah. That's all, sometimes all you really need is time. Yeah. And, and there's patience. so many of those inspiring stories where it's like an individual stepped away from the church 10 years, 20 years, and they just needed, and then maybe the, in their mind they thought, you know, I, I'm done. You know, I am dead as far as the testimony mm-hmm. goes. And then over time, you know, the savior continues to mm-hmm. be with them and encourage them along. And over time that, that green leaf sprouts, right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, we have a starting place now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I remember using this for a object lesson in my young women's class and showing them at one point, like this piddly little green leaf was like, look, it's working. Yeah. And I had no idea that it would turn it back into this beautiful thing. That's something to be proud of. Yeah. Much later. So yeah, that's awesome. Root rot. That's a new term. I love that. <laughs> so what about, uh, what would you prescribe the opposite look like? Maybe talk about this concept with, uh, quote, Carl Rogers, the curious paradoxes that when I accept myself just as I am, then I change. Yeah. So the idea with that is it's, it's hard to be motivated to change when you feel like you aren't good enough as you are. It's kind of like, if you're not going to love me for who I am, then like, why am I going to engage with you? And so if I find this a lot that in, in marriages, you'll I'll have a couple that comes to me and say, like, I'm having all these issues. Like, how can I fix my husband? And I'm like, well, don't try to fix him, love him <laughs> first. And they're like, oh, well, then I'm going to go see someone else because like, I don't want to do that. Like, I can't love him until he changes. Yeah. But the reality is, is it's that very act of showing unconditional love that then gives you the fertile soil and the sun and the water and what you need in order to be able to make changes and grow. Because I think otherwise it just feels like pressure or manipulation or that sort of thing. But when it's unconditional love, it's like, you know what? Like I actually do want to show up as my best self. I want to be a part of this and I want to bring my best self to it. So if I accept who I am, then I can also make who I am better. Yeah. Yeah. And this is an interesting, uh, you know, as you mentioned, this paradox with this concept of acceptance, because I don't, I don't like, I've talked more, a lot about this. I wrote a, a newsletter about it in the context of it's pride month. We're recording in June and this concept of like, well, we need to be, we need to be completely accepting of our LGBT brother and sisters and people are like, no, Kurt, you don't understand. If we do that, then they'll think we're giving them permission to go mm-hmm. sin and live this lifestyle. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. When we're completely accepting 
They know that it's a safe place. They engage with us. And you'll be surprised that someday they may lean in and say, so tell me about your Jesus. Like, interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there's, again, that's not the point of, we don't be completely accepting so we can manipulate them into, we can catch them in the gospel. And it it can feel like this, like, well, what is it? Like, what is your game plan here? And, and I I see this a lot when I work with people who are trying to overcome a pornography problem where Mm -hmm. I'll say like, you need to accept yourself. You need to forgive yourself. You need to say that who you are right now is good enough. You need to understand that the savior loves you right now. Even if five minutes from now you go and engage in a problematic behavior, like he will still love you. Your love is unchanged. And it's interesting to like, you would think that people would be like, yeah, like I want to be loved and that sort of thing. But I have so many clients that are resistant and they're like, well, but, but then how do I keep myself from like engaging? It's like Uh ruining my life. I don't want to do this. And I was like, but you don't understand that the shame cycle of feeling like you're worthless is exactly the thing that's perpetuating this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's just this, like this tweak that we need to make with how we communicate, especially to youth. Cause sometimes there's this overemphasis of like, aren't missions great? Like, Oh, look at Tommy down the street. He's in Ecuador and look, here's, he's so happy on his mission. Like, don't you want to be like Tommy? Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, uh, and we got to go to the temple. Like be, we sort of over reinforce these behaviors and we lose the opportunity of saying, you know, Billy, I couldn't care less if you go on a mission. Like, I'm just glad you're here and you're my friend. And I just accept you, whether mm-hmm. you go on a mission or whether you have a pornography problem, like wh- whatever, like mm-hmm. I accept you here. And that's going to be the difference of them saying, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I'll hang around a little bit rather than these people don't like me. And th- if they knew who I was, they would reject me. And I, I feel like it comes, we give too much credit to the cognitive distortion that sin is enticing. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. we're afraid to say... I will love you no matter what, even if you're sinning, because I think we are afraid that that gives you the rubber stamp of approval of go do it. Mm-hmm. But I really believe that creating goodness in the world is more enticing than sin. And I think we're afraid to accept that because what if we're wrong? But I think people are inherently good. We want to do goodness in the world. And I think we need to trust ourselves yeah. more. Yeah. And I've noticed that in my own relationship with my father in heaven, it's like, when I've let go of the idea that I'm doing things because I don't want to make him mad, but instead I do things because I've been just shocked how overwhelmingly he loves me. And then it's like, I beg for more commandments. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, you've given me these these great commands. Like, what more can I do? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't drink coffee. Could I stop eating carrots? Like, how about that? Like, what, <laughs> like, what else can I do? For right? that one. <laughs> because we, it, rec- it uncovers the sanctifying nature of mm-hmm. a loving God who wants to make us better. Not because we are good, but because he wants to make us great. Mm-hmm. You know, and exactly. that's, that's the beauty of his grace. When we are going to become more and more like heavenly father, the more we grow. And I think that is our, that is our natural tendency really is to become better. And I think we need to trust that in ourselves. Awesome. All right, Andrea, I feel like I've torn your outline apart. I've jumped all around and thoughts. (laughs) What, what else, anything else that we need to touch on before we wrap up? I think just being mindful of the power of right now. Mm -hmm. So don't think about prescriptions for the future. Think about how can I connect with you right now in this moment? How can, if you, have had struggles with abuse or feeling loved or whatever it is that makes it so that you have a hard time engaging. Like, how can I show you a loving moment right now? So that it's not that I'm saying like, Oh, here, go home and make a million friends that are going to love you in the future. How can I love you right now? And I think that's, that's where the beauty of transformation and healing comes is right now in the moment. Yeah. And that's such, that's such a liberating idea for a leader where, and we've talked about this before, like when you remove the responsibility of fixing other people's problems and it's like, actually your job is to connect with them, like just to hear them, just to listen. It's like, 
I can do that. Like, I, I don't know how to fix their pornography problem or why they hate church or whatever, but I can, I can love them. them. Yeah, I can right. love with them and just accept them completely for where they're at. And then you'll uh, magically see the step, your, the savior step in and, uh, and begin to change it. That's remarkable. Right. Well, And there's this principle of healing. My husband's a physician. And when you do stitches on people, there's this principle called approximate, don't strangulate. The premise of it is that your body already knows how to heal. So all you have to do when you're doing stitches is just keep people like keep the two edges of the wound close Hmm. and your body will do its work. And I think that's the same thing as you're trying to heal people from their spiritual fatigue is just keep them close in whatever way they can tolerate and trust that the savior and the spirit already knows how to heal itself. It's not anybody's job to heal them. We already have the power within us to do it. Another metaphor bomb, Andrew. This is, you've got brought some great metaphors. It was worth the price of a mission just for your metaphors. This is great. I love that. Like proximity, like you don't have to fix it, but just bring them in proximity and love them and, and, and watch stand back and see God work. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. All right. If people want to reach out to you, if they're in Tucson and they need a great fifth Sunday lesson, I mean, whatever it is, like what, where can people reach out to yeah, you? Yeah. So my connect? website is andrealystrip.com or you can find me on Instagram at askandreamft. So my website would have all my contact information and I'd be happy to help out in any way that I can. I love doing this kind of thing. Perfect. All right. My last question for you is as you've had opportunity to lead or serve in the, in the way you do through your profession and through church and whatnot, how has being a leader helped you become a better disciple of, or follower of Jesus Christ? I love taking the focus away from yourself. I think a lot of times it's easy to get caught up in your own struggles and that keeps you from progressing. But when you can love someone else, then that brings you forward. It helps you have a, purpose, a sense of purpose. And I think purpose is what drives progress. And I think that's how, that's how I've become closer to Heavenly Father is just by helping other people and loving them. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three free sessions of the LGBT Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.